And if you have a Bible with you, hopefully you do, uh, open it to John chapter 15. And I would officially say welcome to week number five of 40 Days in the Word. You're welcome. We're officially two-thirds the way through. And uh, there's uh, uh, more than halfway, and it, it's been a neat, neat time. Uh, are you enjoying your, the, the videos and all that and the, and the, and the life groups on, on midweek? It's good stuff. Uh, and just, again, it's just a quick reminder. Remember, it's Celebration Sunday. I know it's Memorial Weekend, but if you haven't formalized plans yet and you haven't bought plane tickets to warm, sunny destinations, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, this is a pretty warm and sunny destination. Hopefully we can recipe, the, uh, we can order this up for that weekend. But um, I would just say, would you put that on the calendar? That's going to be a very special day. And you're going to be a part of the service. It's going to be a little bit different than normal. It's going to be more celebration, less preaching. Uh, someone just in the room is going to go, amen. Um, so, yeah, there he goes. So we're, it's going to be, and we, and we need your testimonies. If you want to share something I mentioned earlier, please um, get that to us. You can send, send it by email. Uh, you can fill that form out, uh, send uh, pictures and all that. Let's, let's make that a, a special celebration. Uh, this morning, we are asking this question, and that is, when I read the Bible, how do I understand the meaning of a text? Not a text message, <laughs> but how do I understand the text that I'm reading? Uh, the passage, the verse, the paragraph. And we looked the last, uh, last week, and we saw that there's four parts of a Bible study. And the first part is observation. Just simply looking at it and just asking some basic questions. And what does it say? Just at face value, what does it say? And we, we saw some ways to, to do that, to paraphrase it, right? Um, to probe it, to speak it. Uh, pronounce it. I'm sorry. I think it was the way it is. And so different ways to make observations and then interpretation. And that is, what does it mean? What does it mean? We, we, we talked a little bit about correlation. And that is, what do other verses in the Bible say about the verse that I'm reading or the theme that I'm reading? So if you're reading something and then there's talking about faith or hope and then, well, how many other verses talk about hope and, 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 and how do they talk about it? Uh, that's called correlation. And then fourth, and most importantly, is application, which is really why we're doing this in the first place, because we want to know we want to know what the Bible is saying, because we want to know what the Bible is telling us to do, because we want to build our lives on a firm foundation on solid rock. And that is the solid rock of God's word. And when we do that, uh, we are not being uh, driven by the, the, the fads of the world. We're, we're living according to God's plan for our life. And so we are doing this discovery process because we want to know what that is. And if we need to make changes in the way we're living, we're not going to know it unless we hear it from the Lord and His Word. And so today, my focus is going to be on two parts of that, and that is on interpretation and correlation. In other words, what does it mean and what do the other verses say about that? Now, a couple of months, probably a month and a half ago, I think it was. Um, remember, we've been going through John's Gospel. We took a little little break from that as we're going through 40 days in the Word. And one of the passages that we covered was John chapter 15, where Jesus uh, compares the relationship to a disciple to that of a vine to its branches. 
branches being the disciple and the vine being Jesus Christ. And I'm, 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 I'm glad that, that we got to, to see that a few months ago because it'll be familiar to some of us. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at that passage of Scripture and begin to apply some of these principles. And so it's helpful, I think, that for most of us, this is already a bit familiar. And so we're going to dive into that. Now, you may have heard this said. I've heard it said several times. Does this sound familiar? God doesn't expect us to be successful just faithful. Sounds good, doesn't it? The problem is it's only half right. It's only half right. God expects us to be fruitful. And it's one of the great themes in the New Testament. And what we find here, particularly in John 15, is that it is impossible to be faithful to Christ. It's impossible to be faithful to Christ and not be fruitful. Because fruitfulness is the inevitable result of, faith, of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And that is really the core of what Jesus is speaking here. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 15. And as we do, as we read this, would you note one particular word? The word fruit. It comes up over and over again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from the Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my commandment. Love each other. Holy Spirit, would you open your word to us as we open our hearts? Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be built. We want to be filled with truth. Lord, would you teach us truth from your word, but would you teach us this morning how to mine truth, mine the nuggets to go and dig for the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I was praying that prayer, I just felt like I needed this 
little prompting to us, and that is this. You know, we're going through some pretty amazing stuff in 40 Days in the Word, and we're going to get to the end of this, and I think the question for all of us is going to be this, and that is, now that we've learned how to use some of these tools, are we going to use them? Because I hope that this process that we're going through isn't just an interesting exercise, an education in biblical literature and study. Because if that's all it is, I can tell you, you have completely wasted your time. But if you want, and it's my prayer for each of us, that as we're going through this process, that you will come out to the end of this and you're going to say, you know what? I now not only have the tools to mine God's word, but I am going to dedicate my life to making a regular practice of discovery using some of these tools. And you know what? I've learned when I use tools around my house, which I'm not very good at, (laughs) um, I do. I set the civilized world back several thousand years every time I pick up something. But the more I use one of those tools that is even foreign to me, I begin to learn how to use them. And I get more practice. And so that's the way it is with these things as well. Now, in this passage, there's tons, hundreds, I would say, of, of sermons that could come out of this. It's so rich. We only have time for one. <laughs> um, and so what, today what we're going to be looking at, at this is, is we're going to be focusing on that word fruit. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he calls his disciples to be like fruitful branches in God's vineyard? And to answer this question... We need to use some basic tools of interpretation and correlation. Now, have you ever heard someone say this? I I know I have, especially on my my college campus. Hey, your interpretation of the Bible, that's fine. That's your interpretation. This is my interpretation of the Bible. And you know what? My interpretation of the Bible is just as valid as your interpretation of the Bible. Is that true? Well, the answer is no. It's not true. Why? Why? Because all interpretations are not created equal. It would have been true, probably, if the Bible was just a piece of literature. I remember a literature class, Moby Dick, reading that crazy book. It's about this, oh man, it's just, it's like 17 chapters on a whale, you know. And, and, and I remember some, you know, we were talking about the, the imagery in the book, you know. And Moby Dick, it is... Um, so I think some gal stood up in the middle of the class and was talking about how the whale represents the, the angst of Western civilization and corrupt, uh, you know, uh, corrupt capitalists and, and, and all that's wrong with America. And I'm like, whatever. And the teacher would go, oh, well, that's very interesting. What she's really saying is, you know what, your interpretation of Moby Dick is just as valid as my interpretation of Moby Dick. You put that kind of an attitude on God's word when God had intended to say something very specific and took the time to inspire uh, authors from all over the world, different geographies, to, 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 to put a coordinated book together that speaks to the, the will and purpose of God for human lives and human existence. And you put that kind of an attitude on God's word, you're in trouble. Because then you can make it say anything you want. There's rules to interpretation, and they need to be followed. Otherwise, you're going to make the Bible say anything. There are correct ways to interpret, and there's incorrect ways. And as I say this, I don't want you to be afraid of trying, all right? 
I mean, you might not understand the passage and you might think it says something when it doesn't. That's okay because you're not the kind of people who are wanting to go join a cult. You know, you, you want to know the truth and, and the Lord will show it to you. And just remember this. When you read a passage of Scripture, there may be unlimited applications to that particular passage of Scripture. But there's going to be one meaning, one overriding truth and principle in that passage or that verse. There's a reason it's there. And so this process is to discover what, what that is. And so when Jesus is speaking here and giving this illustration of the vine and the branches, he has something very specific in mind for some very specific people. His disciples in particular that night when he was betrayed just before his crucifixion. And when we come to a difficult test, text like this, we need to ask, uh, not so much, you know, what do I think it means, but what did the author who wrote this think it meant or intend it to mean? And what did it mean to the people who heard this first, who, for whom it was written? And there's some verses in this particular text that are a little bit difficult to understand. Some scriptures are easier than others to understand. Verse 6 is one of those. In fact, verse 6 in here is probably one of the most commonly misinterpreted and misunderstood verses in the New Testament. And it sounds a little scary. If you read verse 6 by itself and you take it out of context, it's a little frightening. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. common misinterpretation you may have heard a preacher on the radio or something speak to something like this and they'll ask the question okay we're to bear fruit so i'm a christian what's the fruit of a christian a christian's life the fruit of a christian is another christian so the conclusion is we need to be good evangelists we need to be able to reach other people for jesus and so in that, in that verse, then the person will think, okay, then he's talking about fire and being burned. What is that? Well, fire, obviously, is a reference to hell. And so you put these two things together and you get this, that if you don't bring people to Christ, God will throw you away and burn you in hell. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's also wrong. And it's a gross misinterpretation. Because a verse only has meaning in the context of the other verses. Now, just a word of caution. Because many mainline theologians will read a verse like that and they look through the text with certain theological glasses and they assume there's a whole thing, a bunch of things it cannot possibly ever mean. There's a, a thought today, it's actually an old one, it's very, very common. In fact, it's probably in, in many or most churches that believe that there's no way for an unfruitful Christian to turn away from Jesus and lose his salvation. That's the idea of being once saved, always saved. I used to believe that. I really did, because that's what I was taught. But I don't this now believe that that is a biblical understanding, a biblical principle. There's also some who reject the concept of hell altogether and judgment. And so they completely ignore the many references to Hell in Scripture, and it's there. And so in Jesus' illustration here, we cannot ignore the fact that the gardener treats 
the fruitful and the unfruitful branches quite differently. He prunes one and he cuts off another. Now, I don't want to go into all the details of what that means because I, I want to just, I'm, I'm telling you this because the main heart of this passage is not about judgment. But if we come to a text like this and we put on these theological rose-colored glasses, they will prevent you from seeing some very important things. Because as I read that, I hear a warning to the unfruitful branch. And I don't want to be one. I don't want to be one because I see there's a harsh treatment and what that means and the significance of that. And I want to, I want to connect to the Lord. I want to connect to the vine and be a fruitful branch. Because if fruitfulness is the inevitable result of a healthy connection to the vine, then the fruit, fruitless branch just needs to ask, what's wrong with my connection to the vine? And again, I just want to be clear about this, and that is this. The main point Jesus is trying to convey isn't about judgment. It's about fruitfulness. And so when we take a verse like that out of context, we can begin to go down this rabbit trail and make this passage say something that it wasn't intended to say. It's about fruitfulness. And the key to understanding this is understanding what is meant by the word fruit. And so we're going to apply some basic rules of interpretation. And the first one is this. It's on your notes. And if you need notes, would you raise your hand? I forgot to mention that. If you need notes and you don't have them, uh, they were in your uh, program. When you raise your hand and the ushers can get them for you. All right. I think we got them all. I think we're good. All right. The first one is this. Consider the historical Context. Consider the historical context. In other words, who was this written about? Who was this written to and why? And what did it mean to them? So when we read this, what do you think it meant to the, the, 11, the 11 remaining apostles that night as they heard Jesus speak this illustration about the vine and the branches? And then we look at the context of the chapters that this passage falls into. And we see that chapters 13 through 17 are really Jesus' final words of comfort to his disciples before the crucifixion. He had invested three and a half years. He is speaking to some people that he loves intensely. Do you hear that love? That's another key word in this passage is the love that he has for these men as he is engaged in an an intimate conversation with them. They had been in the upper room earlier that evening where they had a Passover meal together. And Jesus washes their feet, blows their mind, shows them how to love each other by serving each other. And for the rest of that chapter 13, Jesus emphasizes the importance of loving one another. He knows that there's these tough times that are coming through and that they're going to need to know some important things. And so in, then in chapter 14, the chapter that comes just before the one we read, Jesus makes a number of promises to them. He says, to them, don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. He says, you're going to be able to pray and ask for anything in my name. Verses 12 to 14, chapter 14. He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live in you and comfort you. And I'm going to give you the gift of peace. So don't be troubled and worry. And then chapter 14 ends with these words. Jesus says, come now, let's leave this place. In other words, let's leave the empty room. He's going to take them to Gethsemane. And on the way, he's going to cross through the valley. And they're going to be passing through some vineyards. And as they walk through some vineyards towards the Garden of Gethsemane, he gives them this illustration. He probably picks up a, uh, one of the, 
the grapevines, and he just shows them what he has been teaching them in the upper room. And he demonstrates that there are fruitful branches and there are unfruitful branches. Interestingly enough, right in this same context, Judas, just before this illustration, has left to betray Jesus. Jesus knows this. Judas is a classic example of an unfruitful branch who seemed connected to the vine, but there was no fruit. And we know what happened to Judas. Now, this whole object lesson concludes about the vine and the branches. The whole thing ended with this statement from Jesus. He told us about the vine and the branches, and he says this, verse 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so when you consider the context that chapters 13 through 7 are all about Jesus bringing comfort, uh, encouraging his disciples, his closest friends, reminding them of the intensity of his love, what are the odds of Jesus giving his last words of encouragement to these men? What are the odds that, it mean, that he was really intending to say, you know what, guys, you're going to burn in hell if you don't bear fruit? <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. That's so uplifting. That brings joy. No. That's not what he was meaning. He was meaning something very, very different. You see, the context of this makes that misinterpretation silly. Because Jesus is talking about something very different. And so, number one, we need to consider the historical context. What did it mean to them? And number two, we need to define some key words. Define the key words. We've already mentioned one. It's fruit. Now, to understand what a verse means, you need to understand what the words themselves mean. Not just what you think they mean. Married people in the room, have you ever had an argument with your spouse because you guys used the same word, but it didn't mean the same thing? <laughs> think about it. All the husbands in the, in the room, if you got a text from your wife late on a Friday afternoon, and she said, and it just said these words, honey, I need you. And now every man in the room knows what they hope that that means. Right? But if she said that in the context of cleaning the toilet that's overflowing and is plugged up, you'd want to know that, wouldn't you? Because it means something completely different. Context is everything. And in the scriptures, it's the same way. Context is everything. We need to be careful about the words that the scriptures are, are the words that are surrounding the words that we're studying. The, just think about individual words. Like think of the word a fox. It's a, it could be a furry animal, right? A teenage guy might refer to a girl that way at high school. A uh, it could mean a TV show where you, or a TV station that plays American Idol or Fox News. You, you think of the, the phrase six-pack. A six-pack could be a six-pack of soda, you know? <laughs> it could also be, you know, beautifully sculpted abs. Okay, a keg. Um, the word lean... It could mean that I'm going, to lean on, I'm going to lean on something, lean on me. It could also mean what I hope to be after diet and exercise, lean. 
In this passage, there's some key words. Two of them in particular, I think, are in your notes, and I hope you've underlined them, circled them, and all that. Love and fruit. Love and fruit. Nine times is the word love, and nine times we see the word fruit. Now, we know a little bit about what love means, so I don't want to go into the details of that. But we want to know what is it meant by, what, is, what does he mean by fruit? What does he mean by fruit? You know, that phrase, fruit and fruitfulness, 44 times is mentioned in the New Testament. It's the, word, it's the Greek word karpos, and it comes in different contexts, in the different phrases, and it means different things in almost all of those instances. And uh, they're on screen. I'm not sure if they're on your notes, but they should be on screen. Uh, we see in Matthew 3, 8, we see the fruit of repentance, the fruit of repentance. In Matthew 26, 29, we see the fruit of the vine. That's, he's talking about communion wine. Actually, in Romans 7 and verse 5, it says we bore fruit for death. He's speaking about a sinful lifestyle. 15.28, he's speaking about having received this fruit. He's actually talking about receiving an offering of money. Galatians 5.22 speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, which refers to nine godly attitudes that come when we are uh, filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light. That is, he's speaking about truth and righteousness. Colossians 1.6 says this gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. That fruit there he's referring to are new believers, people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.15 says praise to God. That's the fruit of our lips. In other words, fruit is, is praise. And it means something different, fruit does, in each one of these verses. So what does it mean in chapter 15 in the vine and the branches that we've just heard? What is Jesus meaning when he says we must bear fruit? In that context, well, at this point, it's really not that clear yet. Aren't you glad? And if a word or a verse isn't clear, what do we do next? Number three, we need to interpret unclear verses with clear ones, ones that are more easily understood. And we find three characteristics very clearly here of growing spiritual fruit. Verse four. It says very clearly, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And so we see the first thing about bearing fruit. We're getting some information. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ, by staying in Christ. It's an inside job. Fruit, building fruit is an inside job. It's not, you can't just hang artificial fruit on the vine. You can't staple it there and call it fruit. It's not about imitation, it's about inhabitation. It's God's Holy Spirit flowing in you, which is perfectly consistent with what he just described to them in chapter 14 about him sending the Holy Spirit to be in you. He would say, I, was, I am with you, but I will be in you by the Holy Spirit. He is showing them that there's something new and powerful happening. That word remain means to stay, to continue, to abide, to endure. It's, it's, the, it's a word that means to, to, to last, to be lasting. So bearing fruit is produced by staying and remaining in Christ. Verse 8 says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so we see this, that bearing fruit brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. In verse 11, we see what he said here. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And see, now here Jesus is telling his motives for saying all of this. 
He says, bearing fruit will give me complete joy. Complete joy. Three things. Now, we know a little bit about the fruit. Not everything that we need to know yet. We know how to get it. That is remaining and connecting to Jesus. We know what the fruit does. We know that it brings glory to God and then it brings joy to me. But we're still left with the question, what's the fruit? What does he mean by fruit? And so when we are still scratching our head and we're getting the most information, after we've gotten some background on all of this, we're going to ask a fourth question, and that is, what is the obvious meaning? So we want to look for the obvious meaning. Now, when you're trying to interpret Scripture, trying to understand what something means, don't look for some esoteric, mysterious thing. Understand this. The purpose of God's Word is to reveal, not to conceal. When someone says to you, hey, I have found something in Scripture that no one for thousands of years has ever seen. And look, at I've discovered this interpretation of this particular passage. If someone says that to you, run. Because what they're saying to you is that for thousands of years of all of the scholarship and all the things that God has been wanting to reveal, that he's learned something that no one else has ever seen in the Bible. There's a 99% chance that he's 100% wrong. I'd say there's a 100% chance he's 100% wrong. And yet people will say this. They'll say there's a code. There's a, a mysterious code in the Bible. There's no mysterious code in the Bible. All right? Just stop that nonsense. It's silly. People have been trying to count the words and, you know, they'll, they'll put letters to it and they'll say, oh, if you just do this and that, you the, it spells Antichrist and then George Bush, you know? And now people are doing the same thing with President Obama. If you do this, and you know, well, then Obama must be the Antichrist. And there's, it's just baloney. Don't go into that stuff because the Scripture was intended to be revealing God's heart to you. God has put... Now, let's be honest. There are passages that are easier to understand than others. Some of them are difficult. I think in particular of... Some of the prophetic books like Ezekiel and Revelation, there's some rich imagery in there, which at first glance you think, well, that's interesting language, but what does it mean? Those are good questions. But they're not there to make it hard for you to understand. I think they're there to get you curious and to really dig, and it's available. The Lord wants to make that clear to us. There's great stories in the Bible. We think of things like uh, the, the historical stories, uh, true things like um, Jonah. Being swallowed by a fish. Jesus believed, and, and I do too, that this was a real man in a real time in history because Jesus spoke about Jonah. And then we think about uh, Noah building an ark. And, and we think of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. And these are great stories. We learn from their examples of faith. And sometimes stories in the Bible use illustrations, kind of like this vine in the branches. Or uh, metaphors. And Jesus used parables. He taught in parables. Those stories that we hear, you know. The kingdom of God can be compared to a pearl of great price. The, the kingdom of God is like, you know, uh, there's a, he speaks about the, the prodigal son. And he teaches about how God's love. And he gives these stories. They're not about real people in history, but they're an illustration He's preaching a sermon and he's giving a vivid illustration. And when we come to these 
illustrations, it's important to not try to make every detail in a story mean something. Because you can read into something. And so, uh, I think, what if, for example, I wrote a letter to somebody today, uh, and, and I wrote, and I, this, this sentence was in my letter. I bought a red fire engine at Walmart for my grandson, Caleb. All right. Now, fast forward a thousand years from now. Some theologian picks up my, the letter of Chad, and he sees this sentence in there. And he's going to want to apply bad scriptural interpretation principles to my letter. He's going to look at that letter and say, okay, red fire engine. Okay, fire. He must be talking about hell. He's talking about a red fire engine. So red, that must be the deepest part of hell. Now he's talking about a fire engine. That's a mode of transportation. So he's talking about going to hell in a red fire engine. And then he circles the key word Walmart. Well, wall, that's a barrier. And mart, well, that's an abbreviation for the word martyr. And then uh, we circle Caleb. Okay, Caleb was a friend of, of Joshua in the Old Testament. Yeah. And, and Joshua's name means God is Savior. Oh, and Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Joshua. I got it. The letter of Chad is about how Jesus the martyr provides a barrier to sin so you don't end up in the hottest part of hell. Wow, that's some letter. People, sometimes a red fire truck is just a red fire truck. Don't try to force the meaning. Let it speak by itself. Let it speak for itself. And look what's obvious in a text. And so look at verse 7. When you let the text speak for itself, the meaning of fruit really becomes quite obvious. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. You ready? Remaining in Christ produces answered prayers. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayers. That's very obvious from this passage. There's some fruit. There's your fruit. And yet, what is prayer? Well, prayer can do anything that God can do. And when we consider what Jesus is saying to these men and the context in which he said it, he was talking about really big prayers. And I think it's important to not expect a $1,000 answer to a 10-cent prayer. And when you pray... Don't ask God for what you think is good for you. Ask God for what he thinks is good for you. Because as men and women who abide in Christ, we're talking about him being in charge, the life of the Spirit flowing through us, and therefore our concern, first and foremost, are his concerns. Verse 13 I will, do whatever you, I will do whatever you ask in my name. That is a, such an amazing promise. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son of Man may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Guess what? Answered prayers bring glory to God. When your knees are shaken, 
Kneel on them. When you're swept off your feet, get on your knees. And when you feel the sky is just falling, raise your hands. Lift them up to God. Verse 24, Jesus said this. He said, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Saying, guys, until now you haven't prayed. You really haven't. He says, ask and you'll receive and your joy will be made complete. Oh, look at that. Answer prayers bring glory to God and answer prayers give me joy. Complete joy. Hmm. You know when you don't pray? You don't You don't cheat God. When you pray, you don't cheat God. You know what? You know who you cheat? You cheat yourself. You cheat yourself. And just in case you didn't get it, Jesus ends his talk with this. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Look at this. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit. All other virtues come through prayer. Prayer is the password to all God wants to do in your life. Prayer is not the spare tire. It's your steering wheel. It's not the thing we turn to when all else fails. It's the thing that drives direction in our life. Now, I just want to make a clarification. Because remember, the fruit... Bearing fruit is the inevitable byproduct of a healthy transformational connection to the vine. And who is the vine? The vine is Jesus. And when the life of God's Holy Spirit flows through you, He transforms your desires. Being born again isn't about getting God on my team, but it's about joining God's team, joining His family. We're being born into His family. And for spirit-filled people, your prayers aren't going to be about what you want, but what God wants. And you know what God wants? Look, he wants to continue the works of Christ. And now we're doing some correlation. We're going back to chapter 14 because Jesus said in verse 12 there, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Again, he said this in chapter 14. And now he's saying it again in 15. I will do whatever I ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He's saying, I'm going to do things through you because you're going to come and ask me. That's called prayer. And he says, greater things are you going to do. I I still to this day find that astonishing. The man who walked on water, fed 5,000, rose from the dead, is saying to his disciples, you're going to do even greater things. And he also wants this. He wants not only to continue the works of Christ, he wants you to develop the character of Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And when you're developing this kind of fruit, Jesus said, you know what? You're showing yourself to be my disciples. It's evidence of discipleship. It's evidence of your connection. Because it's naturally just flowing out. And these are big things. They're important things. And I wanted to to include this because sometimes when we say, uh, you know, The fruit is prayer, and you're going to get answered prayer if you connect to the vine. I think there's this this shallowness in some of us, 
most hopefully not all of us this morning, that would say, you know what, I just need to pray more and I'm going to get more goodies. There's some truth to that statement. But in a deeply connected heart to the Lord, it means one thing. And to someone who's shallow and worldly and really only in it for themselves and just wants God to agree with you about doing your own thing in your own way. And you're just kind of the materialist and you just want God to bless your bank account. And I look around the room and I don't see people like that. But I know all of us have a tendency to be like that. And so Jesus is calling us to bigger prayers, fruitful prayers that result in healed bodies, changed lives, restored relationships, decisions to follow Jesus, people connecting to the vine, being born again. It's when people uh, look like Jesus, love like Jesus, have a peace like Jesus, a joy like Jesus, self-control like Jesus. This is the kind of fruit that brings glory to God. And these are the kind of prayers that God will always answer. Because you know what God wants to do? He wants to continue blessing people through you. That's the works of Christ. Loving, forgiving, healing, caring, all of those things. And then he wants to infuse you with the character of Christ. That's like the fruit, the way it tastes. And that's what he's doing. And anyone who is connected to the vine. So ask yourself this question. If God answered my prayer, would its fulfillment bring glory to God or glory to me? Well, pastor, aren't we supposed to ask God for the things that we need? Absolutely. Scriptures all over the place. Give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. We see that. He knows what you need. He wants us to bring those things to him. But I'm going to say something. They may not seem like little things to you, but they're tiny little things to God. Because he already knows what you need before you ask. The problem is we get so preoccupied with those little things. And when he doesn't answer them in exactly the same way that we want him to answer... We lose sight of the really big things. And I think we need to pray bigger prayers than, Dear God, help me get a job or help me with my homework. I, understand, I've prayed both of those prayers. Every Saturday night, I'm doing my homework for my sermon. Lord, help me with my homework. All right? But I don't think it's the biggest prayer I could pray. What if you prayed, God, help me reach my entire office with the love of Jesus instead of instead of praying, you know, God, help me discipline my children. Why not pray? God, help me to raise young people who will change the world for you. That's a big prayer, moms. Let's let's build world changers in our home. So when you're wiping the nose or you're dealing with a shouting match or Serving and doing dishes or whatever, all that stuff moms do all the time. Think about what is he wanting to do through you in these amazing kids that he's gifted you with for this particular season in your life where you're raising this young one. 
Instead of asking God, should I marry this person? I mean, that's, that's a good prayer. I can tell you a bigger one. God, bring me a mate who will encourage your purposes for my life. That's a different prayer, isn't it? See, that kind of prayer reflects the heart of a person who is deeply connected to the vine. I think someday when we go to heaven, we're going to look back and see all the huge things that God wanted to give us and do through us, lives that he wanted to change through us. And we're going to look back and say, you know what, I was so concerned about all those little deals details of my needs and my wants and all of that, that I missed the biggest and the best things. I don't want to miss out on that stuff. I know God has big things for me. I know God has big things for you, bigger than you can even imagine. I feel like God is calling us this morning to enlarge our imagination of the things that God not only can do for other people, but can and wants to do for and through you. It's called building faith. Now, it's important not to just talk about prayer, but to actually apply and do prayer. Pray. So look on your notes if you've got them there. If you don't, maybe your bulletin, your program. And I want you to write out an application statement on what you intend to pray about this week. And I want you to pray and start praying a big prayer. It's not that one that you've been praying all along, okay? Because you know those worries and things that you've been praying about. Those, you can put those on your list, but I want you to include on your list something that looks crazy. Something that only God can do. So that when it happens... People will notice and look at you and say, whoa, God did something amazing in you. And they will look at that fruit. Or God did something amazing in your office or in your family or in your whatever. Whatever it is. And write that down. And I want to encourage you, before you go today, write something down. If you're not sure, take it home and do that. Okay? I just, this, is, this is an accountability question. Raise your hand if you're going to write an application question sometime today. All right? All right? Good. Most of us? Maybe tomorrow, all right? And maybe you need that. Maybe it hasn't come to you yet. But do it. And then start praying that prayer. Now, we're going we're gonna to learn our memory verse for the week, all right? You ready? This is week five. This is our fifth verse. Matthew 7 and verse 24 is our memory verse for this week. Is it up here on screen? Yeah, there we go. So let's do it out loud. Ready? Go. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for opening your heart to us. Thank you for reaching us. Thank you, Lord. Would you come and give us the faith to pray bigger prayers? And Lord, for that one that this morning may not be connected to the vine or needs to reconnect. If that's you this morning, I feel like the Lord would just say right now that He is always available. There's always room for one more in His vineyard. And just in the quiet of your own heart to just say, Jesus, I want to reconnect to You. I want Your Holy Spirit to flow through me. 
And if that is the prayer of your heart this morning, as I just pray, I'm going to pray that again. And I want, I want to encourage you to echo those words either in your heart or maybe just quietly while you're there. But don't just let it be something you're hearing, but it's something that you are praying, if this is for you. And that is, Holy Spirit, I want to connect to the vine. Come and let your life flow through me. I want to bear fruit. I want to pray the kind of prayers that yield the amazing works of God and that build in the amazing character of Christ. And I thank you in Jesus' name.